Welcome to Secret Sauce for Success, show number 22. Hi, everybody. You have tuned in to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we strive to find the secret ingredients that lead to success. We interview successful guests every week and learn their secret to their success. We sincerely hope you implement these habits into your life and become the best you that you can be. Enjoy the show. What's going on, everybody? It's Rick Stahl, host of the Secret Sauce for Success show. Live from Colorado here with my co-host, Doug Kirstein. What is going on, Doug? Hey, Rick, it's good to be back with you. Lots going on, man. There's just crazy economic information, crazy things going on in the economy, crazy things going on in the world. It's just an interesting time to be alive right now. It sure is. We, we disappear off the podcast for three months and all, uh, all heck breaks loose. Can, can you tell us what's going on with these interest rates? The Fed is an interesting, an interesting entity. They have some tools. And really, the, the whole point, before I get into that, even the whole point of the Fed uh, initially was price stability and economic stability, right? So they're really not there to stimulate the economy. They shouldn't be there to stimulate the economy anyway. They should be there to kind of regulate prices and regulate the money supply. Uh, this comes from school of thought called monetary theory. And uh, the big guy uh, or the kind of the king of monetary theory is Milton Friedman. He's dead Milton now. Friedman. He's an economist. You can go on YouTube and and Google all sorts of interesting or look at all sorts of interesting videos from him. It's fascinating. His book, Money Mischief, kind of set the standard for monetary theory and explaining what's going on monetarily. Uh, there's a, a very interesting video of him talking about how money and inflation are tied together and inflation is absolutely 100% a monetary phenomenon. It doesn't happen because goods are, there are fewer goods. It doesn't happen because salaries are going up and because more people are getting jobs, anything like that. It happens specifically because of money supply. Well, isn't isn't inflation like supply and demand? Sort of. And there are, there, nothing in the economy is single factorial factorial right it's all multi-factorial kinds of problems so nothing lives in a vacuum you don't just increase the money supply and get inflation you can fight inflation with other things but it's really a function of the money supply primarily so Friedman talks about how the the excess borrowing or rather the excess spending from the federal government is what drives inflation so a lot of people will say it's government spending it's not government spending that drives inflation it's government um, deficit spending that drives inflation because spending, government spending comes from taxes, which is, is part of the existing money supply, but deficit spending comes from printing money, which then increases the money supply. The increase in money means that the money that you have is worth less than it was before prices go up. The other side of that coin would be more people have more money and so demand is up, so prices are up. But it's really a function of the value of the dollar. So with all of that said, why are the interest rates going up? Well, the Fed has three tools that it can use to fight inflation. One of them is the interest rate, right? And that's what they're doing. What, they, what they're raising or what they manipulate is called the federal funds rate. And that's the rate used by banks to borrow money from other banks. It's an overnight rate. It's the shortest rate that's out there. So yes, we'll start seeing things like the prime rate and all that catch up. Mortgage rates are not going up because the Fed increased interest rates. That will take a while to bleed into that. To, to bleed into that particular type of interest rate. So the number one tool or one of the tools that the Fed has is that change in the interest rate, the federal funds rate. Uh, 
Another one is what they call open market operations, where the Federal Open Market Committee or the FOMC gets together and they either sell or buy government securities. And that is to take or or uh, take out of or put into the money supply, right? And that's, so that would they, be quantitative easing or quantitative tightening? It's part of quantitative easing when they buy securities because that puts money into the economy. When they sell them, that's a, a way of shrinking the economy a little bit or shrinking the money supply, okay? And then the third way is what we call required reserve ratio. So every bank in the United States, every financial institution that lends takes in deposits and lends against those deposits must have a certain percentage of that money that they do not lend against or they don't lend out. So if a bank has 100 million in assets and the required reserve ratio is say 30%, they can lend 70 million of that money. They can't lend more of it. And that is a way to protect against runs on the bank. So that number goes up as the economy kind of starts to have some difficulty. So there are greater amounts of of cash available if there's a run on the bank. And that's where the federal funds rate kind of comes in too, because then that bank, if it if any bank at any given evening is short on cash, they can turn to the Federal Reserve and borrow overnight for as long as they need to. And that federal funds rate is what's used to determine how much that costs. So I never heard of that, that last third one. Person that wants to go borrow from the bank, they they have their own criteria for me, uh, debt to income ratio, right? So among others, yes. Right. So that's how much money I'm kind of coming in versus how much money I can go get loans so to spend. Right. So right. The, you were saying that the bank has a certain like 30% or has that changed recently for that reserve that the bank has to have? You know, I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't looked that up to see what the historic reserve ratios are, but that is certainly something that they do to to lower the money supply, right? If they want to shrink the money supply, they raise the interest rate, they sell securities on the open market so that they sell the bond, the debt, and then the money comes into the the treasury. And then the final one is that required reserve ratio. They increase that so that the amount of money that's available for lending is lower. Wow. And do you, have you been tracking what the interest rate is right now? Well, it was at zero for a long time and it's at three quarters of a point right now. They just increased it by that three quarter. Well, I, I thought, you know, from the 30 year mortgage, I guess, uh, I heard it was over over six oh, percent, six and a quarter six or something like quarter. that. Right now, I don't watch the 30 year. I don't watch mortgage rates that closely, really. But but they are that's really not a, a matter of what the Fed is doing. Those, those interest rates are driven really, I think, more by what's happening with the, the underlying securities to fund those mortgages. That's what's more driving that cost. And do you think it's like, can, like the stock market, you know, prices in things ahead of time, right? The stock market is actually a reflection of the future three to six months out, right? Uh, does the, the mortgage rate, is that a future type driven number? Well, not so much like the stock market is, no. The way that the mortgage, basically the mortgage market works is essentially you have any number of institutions that sell securities to fund these mortgages. And then really what happens is the mortgage is funded and then it's purchased by by large, say pension funds and and those kinds of things. And they're they're broken into segments, maturity segments. And you have say loans that are gonna mature in the next two or two to five years and then five to 10 years and then 
10 to 15 years, et cetera. And those are all priced a certain way to represent what we would have as likely default risk and reinvestment risk and that sort of thing. So the debt market is driven in part by reinvestment risk, which is why you have 30-year rates higher than 15-year rates, because if they lend at a, 15, at a rate of over 15 years, they'll get that money sooner. If interest rates go up, they lose out on less of a, a less of that opportunity than they would over that 30-year period, right? So there's some of that priced into that. The mortgage market is really more a function of what do we really need to do to give the people who are funding these securities or funding these mortgages the kind of return that they require to continue that process? Hmm. Right. Very interesting. Yeah, I saw a thing from HomeSmart, relatively high number of houses on the market now because of the high mortgage rate. And, you know, it's like, how can people afford to buy a $500,000 home at six and a quarter percent? I mean, that's, that's getting up there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the answer is higher down payments, right? Right. And then they have, that's where a lot of these different ideas came from in Colorado. Unfortunately, they really clamped down on this. It's been quite a while now. I was in the mortgage business in the late nineties and uh, they had all kinds of interesting things. You could do interest only loans. Uh, you could do I suppose they probably still have balloons and, and short-term adjustables like three and five-year arms, that kind of thing, and even fully adjustable mortgages. But then they had negative amortization loans and things like that, which were tools that people would use to keep their payments a little bit lower. Do you think that's going to be kind of a resurgence of that stuff? No, probably not. The negative amortization, people got into trouble with those. If you're not familiar with NAGAM, basically what that means is you would have a a teaser rate that they would give you, say 1.5%, something like that. And you'd pay that for maybe six months. You would actually have a 30-year amortization at 1.5%. But then in that sixth month or that 12th month, you would have a full payment that was going to be due for, say, 5% or 6%. But you were still allowed to pay that 1.5% amortization rate, So, or the payment at that 1.5% rate. So, you know, if you've got a a half million dollar loan at 1.5% and you can pay that for say the first 10 years of the loan, you get in, it's a nice, easy payment. But if the real payment is based off of 5%, you have a difference between the one and a half, the payment at one and a half, the payment at five. The difference is added to the balance of the loan. So every time you make a payment at one and a half percent, the balance goes to the balance of the loan and you actually have an increasing mortgage amount that's going to come due to you in 10 years. Oh my so goodness. We found that a lot of people were getting foreclosed on <laughs> 10 years down the road. Gosh, I, it was fine for those people who were using it as a, a financial tool and who understood how that worked, right? So if you needed that short term or you had a, say you had a rental property and you used that and you were, you were collecting enough to pay the rent, but then you had a two months where you were, where you had no renters, you could make that one and a half percent payment. You could make that much lower payment out of your own pocket. And then when you got some renters in there, you could maybe increase that payment a little bit or increase that amount so that you could pay that back down. Right. So people could use that as a tool. It was a, a really interesting type of loan and uh, I really liked it, but they got rid of that. I don't think you can do that in Colorado anymore. And I'm not sure you can do it anywhere to be honest. Right. Right. Don't want to have another 2008 you know, most of the stuff, the housing bubble, especially in the early 2000s, when the housing bubble came about, they blamed it primarily on 
things like no uh, no income verification loans and that they got really clever and really creative about it you could do a bank statement loan if you could show that you had a, a certain amount of money in your bank account they wouldn't ask you where it came from they'd just say well you got money you could pay for this that's fine uh, they would do stated income stated asset loans i mean all kinds of stuff it was amazing if you had a, an 800 credit score you could get just about anything you want any amount of money you want you didn't have to prove it and they blamed a lot of the problems that were in the market on those uh, the downturn right and that that bubble kind of popping on those types of loans but the reality is it was the loans that they were forced to write at for people who had like 400 credit scores right in the name of whatever it was equality or whatever it was that you had to give everyone a loan well a guy who has a 400 credit score there's only one thing we know about this guy and that is that he doesn't pay his bills that's why he's got a 400 credit score. So right. if you say you must lend to the guy who doesn't pay his bills and you're surprised when he doesn't pay you back, that really is foolishness, right? right. So you package these loans together. They, they give these loans out, they package them up. And then things like pension funds and major investor groups buy these things. And then those loans are being defaulted upon because the people can't people don't pay their bills or can't pay their bills or whatever the case is. And then you have problems in the financial markets and that's where the major crash came from back then. So are we in another bubble? What's going to happen? Uh, can you read the future for us? Oh, let's see. Where's my magic eight ball. <laughs> Must be in my other office. So what do you think interest rates? Are we topped out yet at six and no. a quarter? Or are we going to keep going? No. no, we're going to keep going. Inflation is going to keep going. So getting back to inflation, inflation is really interesting. There's some real simple fixes for taking care of inflation, right? Energy is a primary driver for inflation. Right now, we have limits on oil and gas leases. We have high regulation and, and a lot of additional risk that the government is putting on these oil companies. So it makes it such that the risk return trade-off is not equitable for them. Right. So the oil companies, they have a certain amount of return that they have to get and they take risk. And the more return they get, the more risk they're willing to take, the more drilling they're willing to do. But there are plenty of stories that you can read about how oil companies drilled and drilled and drilled and they never found oil in this particular area. Right. Whatever it is, whatever that area is. So there's a lot of risk involved. I think that a lot of people think that the oil industry is kind of a, a guaranteed thing. These big companies, they drill for oil, they find it everywhere, they drill for it, and then they make a ton of money off of it. That's well, Beverly, really Beverly Hillbillies, the guy just shot, you know, on a right. bubble, bubbling crude, right? Up from the, up from the ground, <laughs> bubbling crude. <laughs> that's a, that's a new meaning to the word, I'll take a shot at drilling for oil, you know? I mean, that's not, what, not exactly what we mean by that. So, so, so you're saying that the high cost of oil right. is drives the inflation, is what you're saying? Right. High cost of energy drives inflation because it, it, it supports inflation. So I said earlier that inflation is a monetary problem, and it is. All of the money that's in the economy right now is trying to go after the goods that are available, and there's not enough goods to support that. So we have dollars being worth less because the overall situation hasn't changed. We just have a lot more money in the economy. So other things must change to offset that. It's okay to have more money in the economy if we have the ability to offset that by growing supply for the goods and things that need to be purchased, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing is, and I think that this is going to be a long-term uh, long problem. I think we're probably at least two years to three years on a recession. 
and will be in the hole for a while. And the reason I think that is because, first of all, politically, and I don't mean to turn this into a political discussion, but the things that need to be done to offset the inflation are things that can easily be done politically. You can take those oil leases, give them back, let them let them drill, let them find the oil. We were net energy exporters and energy independent, and then we had the administration change, and now we're begging the Saudis and the, the whoever else, Venezuelans, to pump more oil because we need more oil, right? And that's mm-hmm. ridiculous. We can, we can easily come to that ourselves. But then the other part of it is we've had such poor leadership in terms of, of making our workforce quit or, or be laid off because of the vaccination problem, all that kind of thing. So you have to get vaccinated or you get fired. And now we have shortages of workers all over the place, which has led to a shortage of goods because the goods aren't produced. And then when they are produced, they can't get anywhere. I think we still have, I don't know how many ships are sitting out in Los Angeles Harbor because there's not enough people to work them to bring them in and unload them. So these are major problems, right? And that, right. all that stuff can easily be taken care of by limiting those restrictions or eliminating those restrictions, getting those people back to work, bringing energy costs down, stop with the extra money printing and all that kind of stuff, allow the supply to catch up, and prices will come down and inflation will slow way down. It's really not a complicated problem. But Doug is, for president. Ah, yes. That's all there's to it right here. Yeah. So those are things that can be done. Then, then there are other things as well. You know, the Fed has things that they can do, but the Fed is kind of the problem. The Fed is printing the money, right? The Treasury is printing the money. They should stop doing that. And, and now they're trying to backpedal on that. But it's just too little too late. It's an overall economic problem. And they'll say, people say that the, the world, there's inflation all over the world, so it's not the fault of the United States. Well, the United States, the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. I don't think people really understand what that means. People come to the United States for the strength of the dollar. When the dollar is weak, that means the reserve that every country has in this world is worth less. The wealth that they have is worth less. So that drives that inflation all over the world. So any country where they have, where they have a lot of U.S. dollars and where they buy things in U.S. dollars, they're going to really suffer from this. Okay, and that's pretty much every developed country and every mid-range developed country, right? So I just pulled up the U.S. dollar uh, stock ticker UUP, uh, mm-hmm. and that seems like it's pretty high here. You know, it it's sure uh, right out the peak of a like a five-year peak here. Well, so why why yeah. is the why? Yeah, I don't understand why the dollar's strong, but. We're, like you said, we're printing money and it's making everything worth less. And so, because still the, the strength of the U.S. economy still drives what people are looking at for the dollar, right? Even though inflation is high and the value of the dollar is coming down, it's still your best bet, right? Hmm. I mean, it's like people who are, who are on the Titanic, they were running to the back of the ship because the front of the ship was sinking. It's still going to sink, but you know, the back of the ship's your best bet at this point. Right. So, right. you know, it's, it's a matter of time, I think, as far as when that bottom starts to fall out on that. And the Chinese are working very hard to put themselves in a position to be the reserve currency of the world and the number one economy in the world. Yeah. Yeah. They're sure working together. Yeah, they really are. So, you know, there's a lot of things happening right now and not everything points to these conclusions. Like you say, the dollar seems to be very strong. But if we experience inflation in a weaker, less valuable dollar, so does every other country that has 
reserve currency in the dollar. They experienced the same thing. So I heard in some of the other countries, I mean, inflation here was what, 8.6% year over year last month? And uh, over in, I can't remember the country, but it was like, I thought I heard a thousand, you know, hundreds. Yeah. Was it back in the 30s, back in the 40s, something like that? In Venezuela, they had hyperinflation. People would get paid three times a day because by the time the end of the day came by, the money they earned in the morning wasn't worth anything. (laughs) So you get paid three times a day so they could go buy something so they would have that value from that from those dollars. And it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, you get to that point and there's no value for anything. Right. Right. So, so, you know, yeah, how do you hedge against that? Well, uh, there are several ways to hedge against that precious metals, uh, gold and silver are some ways to hedge against that sort of thing. Um, the stock market is still, even though it's volatile, if you have time, the stock market will still be about your best bet to protect against inflation. Right. And then beyond that, it's some of these other things like uh, in some ways, real estate is a good way to go because you can not only you've got several things that go on as a benefit for real estate. You have tax benefits. You have the ability to leverage that asset to bring in more money. You have uh, appreciation on that property, all those kinds of things. Cash flow producing assets like real estate or dividend paying stocks are probably good ways to go because you can always reinvest that dividend, reinvest that cash flow into other properties and other things and allow that as a springboard for additional growth. Hmm. Very good. Very good. So speaking of real estate, I heard that there's a flip going on with the secret sauce for success guys. (laughs) You know, I read about that somewhere. So can you tell us a little bit about this uh, flip we got going? Yeah, it's a small little property. What is it, 750 square feet, 760 square feet, something like that. Two bed, one bath. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a nice little, nice little place. We're probably going to be done with it here in another six weeks or so. I think and like to see, see it get on the market maybe toward the beginning of August and get it uh, get it sold so um was it an off-market deal yeah we have uh, a team of people who are working on our behalf to to bring that bring some properties and some some good deals to our our attention and uh, i think through some of the things we've learned in this podcast we kind of started looking around for for these sorts of things and came across this these gals who are are doing some really great things and uh, i love the idea of buying off-market deals because you get out of that bidding war right so, well, I think we're done with bidding wars for a while with the uh, mortgage rates so high, right? Yeah, that's another thing. You know, the inflation is kind of a bummer, but at the same time, there are some silver linings that those uh, those bidding wars and things like that for those who are in the real estate market have gone away. It's going to become a little bit more of a buyer's market uh, moving that direction versus the seller's market. So if you're looking to buy, man, it'd be as easy to sell your house now, but at least you can buy one for a you know, a little bit more reasonable price. Right. Right. So, Yeah. Very good. So well, I, I can't wait to hear more about the fix and flip as we, as we progress through it. Yeah. Well, the, the demo is all done, you know, 750 square feet doesn't take you long to demo. And that's true. Uh, the big thing is that it's funny, you know, one of the most interesting things I think about real estate, I mean, doing flips, especially is when you go into these places, you see the, 
weird things that people have done in their houses. And this place had a one room where there was wallpaper on all four walls and the ceiling. And uh, it was not a particularly unattractive or even particularly busy wallpaper. It's not the kind of thing you'd walk in and you know have a seizure or something, but it was, uh, it was all over the room and not easy to get off. The crew we had taken it off took them an extra three or four days to get that room cleared versus wow. originally ant- anticipated. So yeah, these things, uh, these things are interesting. I flipped a house about 10 years ago now and uh, somebody built a closet and they just screwed the two by fours through the, the drywall and the ceiling <laughs> and didn't bother to find studs. <laughs> when I started beating on that thing it fell apart without much trouble. Oh. So anyway. oh boy. Yeah. People are funny. They do some funny things, man. I'll tell you. Yeah. So how, you know, that's a pretty good segue into, you know, like why you should get a home inspection. And uh, we actually have a guest, uh, Tom Kelsey with Housemaster. And we get to hear a little bit about uh, what goes into like inspecting a house. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and it's interesting because uh, there is not at this particular time, I think this is going to change soon if my memory serves me, but uh, at this point, there's no requirement for licensure for home inspectors, which means yeah, that I can have a truck and a ladder and be able to communicate to you that he can inspect your home. You can hire him as a home inspector. Yeah, that surprised me too. I, I thought it was a regulated uh, business. But then looking back, uh, some of the uh, inspections I've got for our properties some one came and it was like on a like two or three pieces of paper with some check marks and that's all it was yeah and, and he's like oh it's not going to fall down i was like oh okay thanks <laughs> and it didn't there was it turned out good but but then other new ones you know they they give you videos and pictures and links and pay you know 20 pages long so it, it varies i guess i've seen it the output vary a lot so i guess that tells you that it's not a standard regulated industry right right uh, yeah and it, it's it is it is interesting because contractors are all regulated right and appraisers are regulated don't you have to have a license to be an appraiser don't you i mean am i, am I mistaken about that and uh, so there's all kinds of uh, realtors are regulated you guys go through all kinds of continuing education and all this sort of stuff there, there, rather, there are a whole lot of parties involved in a real estate transaction. It's not just a couple of guys shaking hands on a corner. It's you know, realtors and title companies and mortgage companies and all of these people, most of whom are also heavily regulated. So it's weird that, that the home inspector is not. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So how about we get to the interview with Tom Kelsey? Yeah, let's do it. All right, today we have a special guest with us, Tom Kelsey, owner of Home Master Home Inspections. Welcome to the show. House Master Home Inspections. Oh, I'm sorry. House Master, correct. Yeah, well, well, thank you for the warm welcome, and I'm looking forward to hanging out with you guys today. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Appreciate you taking the time for us. Yeah, so Tom, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I, I run House Master Home Inspections. We focus on home inspections, but we also do a lot of environmental testing in houses. I find it to be super important that people are living in a great environment 
and that they understand all the health benefits of making of making sure that the systems in their house are running correctly and doing the things they're supposed to do so that they can have a, a wonderful living environment. And of course, that all starts when they purchase their home and go through a home inspection. Right. You're the first line of defense, right? That's right. Yeah. Tell us a little about what what's involved in a home inspection and then uh, what maybe adds or what kind of adding additions you can put onto that for environmental testing and the kinds of things that you find in a home inspection that maybe tell tell you that you should do a little bit of that additional testing. Yeah, it's a great question. A home inspection is a visual inspection of the readily available elements of a home. What we do is start up on the roof and we do a visual inspection of the roof, all the flashings, the gutters, and particularly making sure we're paying attention to the dial and age of the, that roof covering. The, the most important part of a home inspection is making sure we understand where water is going. And that all starts at the roof. Right. From there, we generally get off the roof and we do an exterior inspection. And we're starting right up there at the inspecting the soffits, you know, looking for those signs of past water damage. And really in a home inspection, we, we want to look and see if there's any fresh paint up there. So we're doing that exterior up high. We do a second pass, taking a look at the windows, all the penetrations of the siding, making a visual judgment on the siding and is it waterproof, where are the areas where there's damage and where um, we feel like they need to be improved. And then we're taking kind of 10 or 15 steps back and we're looking at that last kind of one, one to two feet at the bottom of the siding. And, out about that six feet out, making sure that we have good slope. You know, so many houses here in Colorado are affected by water coming off the roof and going right down to the foundation. So say 75% of all houses, we remind people that their gutters have to have downspouts and they need to be running out at least six feet away from the house. I think I've seen that on every one of my inspections. <laughs> yes, yes. With the, with the uh, soils uh, that we have here, it is, it, it is so important. Um, and when we find damage inside houses in the basements, it's generally linked to those downspouts. So from there, we're, we're, we're you know, taking a look at the, the additions, decks, patios, those kind of things we find on the outside. We're going inside and we're going to start running water. And we want to start running water so that we can fill up the uh, lateral lines, make sure we, we are finding any leaks in the house. For me, uh, m- many inspectors go right up to the attic. I actually go to the attic last because it's the hottest place in the house. And I don't want to be walking around some of these houses with a, uh, with a sweaty, smelly brow. Uh, but I go upstairs and, and we're taking a look at everything. We're going through the electrical system. We're going through the plumbing. We're going through each bathroom. So we do a 12-point uh, check in every single bathroom. We run uh, every bathtub. We, we fill about an inch or two of water and we're shutting everything off. Make sure we hear that that water is running through the system the way we want people to hear it. I always wondered if he always filled it all the way to the brim or just like halfway or quarter. No, I, I just, you know, really, I feel, uh, I, I feel a couple of inches because I just want to make sure that I I'm hearing. And because I'll generally leave the uh, kitchen sink running for like five to 10 minutes. Cause again, what I really want to do is I want to be 
filling enough of that line that if there is a plug downstream, that it does start to back up. And that's, that's what we really want to find. Okay. So to me, at least 15 minutes of running water throughout the home inspection is where I want to be. Right. Because uh, that's what it takes. You know, we're checking the water. We're making sure that there's hot and cold at every faucet. We're making sure every shower or bathtub has hot and cold. We're making sure that they're on the right side. Those right. Hot. <laughs> and, you know, well, some of the things, I, I don't know, sometimes I think like, oh, it's silly. Like, does the fan work? We'll talk a little bit more about environmental testing or a bathroom that's no window and no fan. That is a prime time place to find mold. Oh, and people ask me all the time, like, is there really mold in Colorado? It's so dry here. You know, mold needs two things. It needs water. It needs food. And everything in your house is food. Everything is cellulose, uh, drywall, the studs, paint. Mold will live in any of those conditions because if there's a, a roof leak, and it doesn't even have to be a roof leak, right? We go back to talking about the flashings on the roof. If there's not a good flashing, the gutter can fill up backflow onto the soffit, soffit into the house. I am really careful every time I find a closet that is upstairs and has an outside wall on it. Those are prime time locations because it's dark, warm. And if we get a little water in there, it's bound to happen. So from there, we're going through, we're checking your electrical panel. So a home inspector will want to take a look at the line coming in, make sure that, you know, how much power do we have, right? Anything under 60 amps these days is just not enough. And I actually think anything under 100 amps is not enough to power a house today. Every homeowner that buys a house today asks me, can they put in an electric car? And anything under 200 amps, I tell them no, not with the current. Uh, oh, wow. Because those things just pull so much, right? So everybody wants to Put up, be, you know, everybody's thinking about putting on solar and everybody's thinking about putting uh, an electric car in the garage. So right. There's, there's a couple of things that we always want to just hit out front. So, yeah, we're going through those bathrooms, we're going through the bedrooms, through the electrical system, through the kitchen, you know, making sure that we're uh, really trying, you know, turning everything on, making sure light switches work, checking that there's no leaks underneath the sinks, make sure there's no water damage under there. Uh, you know, almost every kitchen sink has water damage underneath it. Just so sure. just those new home buyers are crystal clear. <laughs> they have it. Yeah, then we're down in the basement, right? And I think this is the good stuff, right? So we want to make sure we run the heating system and we want to run the cooling system if we can. We want to really make sure that there's no uh, rust inside those units. It's very common in our environment where we have really dry winters. And then we run our air conditioners that the condensation tubes get blocked because in that dry summer, we just get dust and particles fall into those uh, traps and they plug up those systems. And it's amazing how often we come across heating systems that have rust. Once they have rust, it weakens the metal and the heat exchanger is a very it's very likely that those heat exchangers are going to crack much earlier in their, their designed life. Once they crack, that's carbon monoxide coming in. Right. Right. So, so every time we run the heater, the furnace, we always want to make sure we're have a carbon monoxide meter there. Those units can be cracked and not be spilling carbon monoxide, but it's a dead indicator if, if it is. And you check for gas too. 
so we, we check for gas leaks along the gas line, right? J just with a, a standard meter that checks uh, combustion gases. Okay. So we'll just follow those lines when we can. It, it's, you know, here a lot of basements are finished. And so we end up with a lot of finished material. So we only see right. a portion of that line. We're also checking the water heaters. So it's very common for people to have water heaters that are, are living beyond the designed life of those units because they really are only seven to 12 years. And the life of a water heater is dictated by the quality. I want to say quality, but by the makeup of the water where you live. Sure. Than your neighbors. Does drain, uh, draining a water heater really help prolong the life of it? You know, I've always heard you're supposed to do the draining yeah, every year. So, so it does because it drains out the sediments. The newer water heaters, uh, like the Reams, are a self-cleaning unit. That's what I recommend to people if they ask um, because they just get rid of that. I, I'm also a big believer, and I know a lot of your listeners are uh, investors, right? I'm a big believer in these plumbing companies that have the membership services where you pay like 150 or $200 a year. They come out twice a year. They drain your hot water heater each year and they check your AC in the spring and check your furnace in the fall. If you have rentals like I do, to me, that is the best spent money because I at least know that the, the air filters are getting changed one twice a year. Right. Because that that the cleanliness of the blower unit will dictate the life of that furnace beyond anything else you can do. Yeah. And I have some renters who are great and they change them all the time. And I have renters who, you know, when I call the service guys afterwards, they're like, yeah, they haven't been changed since I did last time. So it, it is a really, to me, money well spent. Okay, good idea. Let's take a break and hear a word from our sponsor. Here at Stahl Realty, you are number one. I'm a realtor with HomeSmart, and my job is to make sure you are satisfied. Here is what one satisfied client of Stahl Realty had to say. Rick Stahl was an awesome asset in helping our family find a home that checks all our boxes. He is patient and committed. I would recommend calling upon his services. One of my favorite mottos is making milestones memorable. Buying or selling a house can be overwhelming, but with my guidance and expertise, I can make this process as smooth as possible. I can be reached via email at stylerealty at gmail.com or text call me at 720-429-3303. I look forward to hearing from you. And now back to our show. Just kind of finishing off what we do in our home inspections. The last couple things we do is go out, um, take a look at the garage. We want to make sure the garage doors are working appropriately. All the safety features are there. Then we're popping up in the attic. And again, we want to really make sure that, that we're thinking like water, right? We want to make sure there's no water damage in that attic. Um, if there is, we want to try to get as close as we can to it and hopefully check to make sure that's not an active leak. Because as you, as you guys know, that's what a, a home buyer or investor needs to know, right? How, how well is the structure of that attic performing? And then, of course, we're identifying uh, insulation types, uh, making sure that there's enough ventilation. I've been on a real ventilation kick for the last couple of years. We have so many homes here in Colorado that are underventilated. So the, the standard 
would be one square foot of ventilation for each 300 square feet of seating space. And you're talking the, like the, under the soffit, the little vents? So I'm talking about the vents on top. But if you like add the soffit vents, you actually triple that airflow. Okay. So, the, tur the turtle vents, I think they call them maybe? Yeah. So the turtle vents are a particular kind of air vent up on top of the roof. They're kind of either domed or, or flat vent up there. But if you add soffit vents, so, so one of the things that happens is so many people are, are thinking about the efficiency of their home and they're adding extra insulation. And when they add that blown in insulation, they actually cover their soffit vents. Oh. And so they actually eliminate a lot of the ventilation. Huh. So we, we go up on roofs. Anytime we see cracking of the shingles, uh, that's actually thermal cracking. The roof's actually getting too hot. Hmm. So cracking and blistering are, are, are two things that'll happen to a roof that get too hot. And so, you know, like I say, people are just adding all this insulation and not thinking about the ventilation. But the efficiency of your home is actually dictated more by that ability of that attic because it's an unconditioned space to breathe and move the air through it. Especially oh. with our cool nights here. Uh, one of the things we do is we take a little uh, temperature gauge that has uh, temperature on there and put it up. And, you know, we just want to look. If, it, if it's more than 20 degrees difference between the outside temperature and the inside temperature, we know that there's probably some sort of temperature problem. Hmm. Um, and you'd be surprised, like, every time we do that, when we, you know, we'll see the amount of moisture in those attics rise as that temperature rises. Your original question was, what, what are the environmental concerns that we find uh, when we do our home inspections? And A, number one, uh, we're always interested in looking for mold. Okay. Anytime there's water damage, we want to check for mold. You know, for us, we carry uh, swab kits and we can do a really inexpensive swab kit for somebody. The, the problem with swabbing for mold, it only tells you part of the story. What you really need to do is do an air sample test. So we have these aerosols, which are a film in a canister, and we put those on a pump that's drawing air across it at a particular rate. And we do a test outside. And people are always freaked out when I'm checking for mold outside. But because our environment is full of mold, it's on our bodies, it's in the air, it's in it, pollen, it is everywhere. We want to know what the baseline around your house is so we can triangulate where the mold is. So we go in your house, take a second sample in a place where we're not, we're not as concerned about the mold, then we want to take a third one in that area where there might be mold. And when we send those off to the lab, they'll come back and they'll, they'll evaluate about a thousand different kinds of mold and tell us how much of each one is at those different places just to verify that we have an elevated amount and if any of them are considered toxic. So that's really the gold standard is doing that air test. The other thing that people don't really realize is how, if you have a gas stove in your house and you're making spaghetti tonight, just making a spaghetti dinner will put about three cups of water in the environment in your house. And people always assume that that little fan above their stove is just for odors, but it's actually for moisture. 
And so in some of the newer houses that are being built in some of the jurisdictions here in Colorado, they actually require that a, a full-time fan be installed because I, I live in an 1886 model home here in Denver. The thing is leaky as can be, that moisture is probably just gonna leave the house anyway. But in a really tight new house, that moist air has nowhere to go except for to cling onto your wall and become home for mold. So these jurisdictions are actually at requiring full-time fans being run. And so you'll see them in laundry rooms or in a, in a closet, or not a closet, but in a, a smaller room, just to make sure that they're cleaning the air out in these newer houses that are so tight. So some fans just like suck it in and then blow it right out through a, like a metal grate fan, right? Yes. So, so it doesn't even do anything, right? Right. So, so what that's supposed to be doing is running it through a filter. But yeah, so we see a lot of fans, particularly associated with microwaves above a oven or range um, that do exactly that. They're just recirculating the air. And they're supposed to be filtering the air. But the best, the primo, is to make sure that it's actually getting circulated out. So. Okay. So and that brings me to radon. radon. Radon, yeah. Issue here in Colorado. So 50% of our counties in Colorado are what are considered red counties, which means that over half the homes have four or more picocuries of radon gas. So the EPA has set the standard at four picocuries. Um, if you have more than that, you should mitigate less you're okay. A picocurie is a millionth of a curie. Nobody has any idea what that means. I have a hard time explaining it to people. I bet. But the real question is, what the heck is radon? Radon is a breakdown of uranium. So we all learned in high school how elements have half-lives and they'd start to decay over a long period of time. Well, uranium breaks down four times and its fourth breakdown, it actually becomes radon. And radon is really nice as a testing material because it's a noble gas, which means it doesn't, it doesn't uh, collect any electrons on its path through life, which means it stays radon uh, the whole time. So we test for radon. The point is, is that uranium and all its decay products are radioactive. So we actually have a little bit of nuclear, nuclear waste in your house in the form of a gas. And so what's happening is if you imagine a cup and you flip it over and you trap the soil in your house and then like great brilliant humans that we are, we ignite all kinds of little uh, fires in our house. So our furnace, gas powered furnace has a little fire in it. Our gas powered oven has a little fire in it. And what that does is those fires have to have two things to burn. They have to have a spark they have to have oxygen, they have to have fuel. Well, that oxygen is being pulled into all those little fires. So every time your hot water heater poofs on, it's sucking all the gases in your house. And so that's literally pulling the radon out of the soil into your house. Hmm. And so this is why all these houses in Colorado, especially those that have basements and crawl spaces have radon gas. So they're actually pretty easy to mitigate. Um, mitigation in Colorado, 
I'm going to couch the statement with the fact that it's uh, June 22nd. On July 1st, radon is going to be a mitigated, or, or sorry, radon mitigation is going to be a regulated industry in Colorado. What does that mean? So like any of the regulated uh, businesses in Colorado, you're going to have to have a license to do it. Oh. You're going to have to have some education to be able to do it. We've known for a very long time we have a radon issue here in Colorado, and we've just sent people out to fix it. And they haven't always done a great job for us. Oh, So there's going to be some education, there's going to be some licensing, there's going to be some oversight. And for those of us in real estate, this is also going to be for measurement professionals. Like I've had to go out and get a license from the state to be able to continue to test for radon here in Colorado. Uh, it's going to be a big change for us because it has been a relatively inexpensive and every every home inspector that I know of tests for radon. Uh, you go out and buy a meter and you stick it in the basement and go back to your business. That's going to change. And, and I think the cost of mitigation could go up. And I guess that's where I was trying to go with this. An example of mitigation gone bad. I was in a house last week and they had a very nice pipe coming out of the base, out of a crawl space into a basement and then went up through the house, through the middle of the house and sent the radon over the roof. The problem is, is they put the fan in the basement. So the fan is sucking in the radon and shooting it out, but there's no control of how much sucking it needs. So it's sucking radon from the soil into the house, through the crawl space into the house before it shoots it outside. You should never have a radon fan in your house. It should always be on the outside, at least in the attic. And so those are the kind of things that regulation will hopefully fix here in Colorado for us. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Um, sorry, I'm trying to go through these really quickly. Um, oh, there's a lot of stuff. 1976 and before, people always want me to, to test for lead paint. And I can almost guarantee them every time they're going to have lead paint. It, it, it is common. It, it was how we made paint. Asbestos. We, we see a lot of asbestos. And I am a licensed, state licensed asbestos building inspector. We see a lot of asbestos in the uh, heating systems. We see a lot in flooring. We see an incredible amount on the ceilings. The number one thing that I test for is popcorn ceilings. Anytime right. you have a house built before the 90s, I can almost guarantee that that popcorn ceiling, and everybody wants to take it out. Right. But it, it can be an incredibly expensive task. So we do, we, do, we do a ton of testing for that. The other thing is kitchen floors. A lot of people came in and just covered over the kitchen floors that they think are asbestos, um, encapsulated them. Now they're tile but they've got that step up. I know you've been in a hundred houses that have a little step up going in the kitchen. It's about an inch, inch and a half step up. It's all because of asbestos flooring. Asbestos was used in thousands of products really before 1986 and really even beyond that where we really get into the questionable stuff is the mid nineties to the early 2000s because asbestos is not actually illegal in this country. You can still import it. You can still make things out of it. It's just that nobody really wants to buy it. Um, but it is in many products that we just don't recognize it to be in. 
So one property I bought, uh, the the home inspector noticed, or maybe he indicated that we had polybutylene piping. Yeah. But he really didn't even say anything about it. He just kind of, oh yeah, whatever. And I bought the place and I had water leaks within a few months. All the joints were built in the 80s and I had to go replace all the piping, which, you know, I got it done for like 8,500 bucks, but it could have been 16,000. And I was so mad. I talked to the inspector afterwards. He's like, you know, hey, you know, yeah, it was right there. I marked it. I'm like, well, yeah, but you could have told me, you know. So Yeah. So I, I, I see both sides of this conversation all the time. One is people don't read their inspection reports. But but I do think it's important that an, you know, a really good inspector should be marking that as, you know, however they do it, poor, bad, red flag, whatever, like it should be the worst rating, right? Because right. it is a product that's known to leak. You know, the, the one that I see all the time is galvanized piping, water piping. And that's one where when I see galvanized piping, I always recommend a water test. In as much to prove to people that the water quality is probably pretty bad with that galvanized pipe because people don't want to spend, what would you say, $7,000 to replace the water system if they don't have to. And as an inspector, when you say, hey, this this could be, you know, this piping is going to leak. I believe the quote is, is that galvanized piping was intended, it had a designed life of 40 years. We stopped using it in the 70s. So nobody should should be using galvanized pipe anymore. It's beyond its 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 useful life. Right. Like the polybutylene piping. I've never dealt with it. So I had no clue what yeah, what, not, what there was. wasn't a lot of it. There wasn't a lot of it put in. You know, certain certain tracks around here, some of the track building, you know, it's in everything. Right. Um, but but you know, it wasn't it wasn't used by like guys going in and repairing a water system. Um, in a single house. Right, right. But yeah, it, it is definitely a, a problem. Those recalled products should should always be brought up with the home buyer. You know, right now we're in the middle of the, the square D electrical panels. So the 2019 to 2022 square D electrical panels have a big recall. And right now it's really hard as an inspector to figure out like, is yours a bad one? <laughs> because they made millions of different products. And there's probably about 20 different sub-models that are, are being recalled. Isn't there another older electrical panel that... So you've got the Zinsco breakers, and then the, the, the other panel is the, the Stab Locks, Federal Pacific. Yeah. Says, yeah. Yeah, so so that, those have always been the, the you know, the Zinscos and the, and the Federal Pacific of the two we've you know, at least I've always been trained, like, see those, it's an automatic, got to so, tell them about it. I'm going to go ahead and stop this interview for this podcast uh, right here at this good breaking point. Tom Kelsey has a lot more information, so I hope you tune in for the next podcast to hear the conclusion of his story. I know Doug and I are sure enjoying uh, interviewing these guests. They have so much information to give us, so we hope you're enjoying it. And until then, uh, take care. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Secret Sauce for Success show, where we find the secret ingredients for success. We all want to be successful in life. 
So let's break down the steps it takes to get there and learn from other people's journeys. We hope that through the stories you hear on our show, you will find success in your life.